presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about trauma. Welcome, everybody, to episode 43 of First Years. Before we do anything, I have some House Points news. This shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, but Hufflepuff is killing it and is still in the lead with 2,270 points. Slytherin is in second with 1,040 points. Ravenclaw is in third with 560 points. And Gryffindor is in last with 505 points. Now, there is still time to earn house points. You can always do it by answering our trivia every week and participating in Mindful Magic Mondays and also rating and reviewing this podcast. But also, we have one more episode after this one, so you have a couple more weeks to do those things. And we also will have our House Cup Cocktail Night where we will make cocktails, we will discuss Harry Potter, and you will have a chance to earn more points during that event before I declare the winners. Okay, so let's get started. This episode's going to be a longer one, so if you need to pause and make sure you have a second or third butterbeer to drink during this, go do that because we are finishing up book four and my notes for these chapters go on for 16 pages. (laughs) So go get yourself a drink if you need to, and I will wait. Back? Okay, great. Let's get started. So Harry makes it back to the Quidditch pitch, and he has the cup and Cedric's body. And we spoke last episode about how traumatic this graveyard experience was, and we're going to talk about that today. But I just wanted to point out the detail of this quote. He felt as though he would slide away into the blackness gathering at the edges of his brain if he let go of either of them. Shock and exhaustion kept him on the ground, breathing in the smell of the grass, waiting, waiting for someone to do something, something to happen. Harry has just been facing everything himself. And now he's in a position where he can't fight himself anymore. He's ready for someone else to take over whatever is going to happen next. He's done his part. He's survived and brought Cedric's body back, just like Cedric asked him to. And the first thing that Harry says when Dumbledore turns him over is he's back. He's back. Voldemort. And we see in these chapters the different ways that Fudge and Dumbledore handle things. Fudge tells Harry to let go and is trying to pry Harry off of Cedric, but Dumbledore is more gentle about it and reminds Harry that he can't do anything more to help him. He's done his job and he needs to let go. Dumbledore seems to understand immediately that whatever Harry has been through, it's been an ordeal, 
but Fudge doesn't seem to be on the same page with that. And we're going to circle back to them at the end of the episode. But what makes matters worse is that Harry is taken by who we think is Mad-Eye Moody, someone who he has trusted all year, who we as readers came to trust. He gets taken away by him, and we find out that he was actually the Death Eater that was working for Voldemort and put Harry's name in the Goblet of Fire at the beginning of the book. He takes Harry out of Dumbledore's sight, which the real Moody never would have done, and he questions Harry about everything that went on in the graveyard. He's been the one planning all of this from the beginning to help Harry through the tournament. Did you see that one coming? Or was this a total surprise? And so, Mad-Eye Moody, slash the real Barty Crouch Jr., is curious about how Voldemort has treated the other Death Eaters, the ones who showed up in the graveyard, which are the ones who did not go to jail for him. And he wants to know if he forgave them. And this gives us an inside look at the dynamics of the Death Eaters and their loyalty. There's negative sentiments about the ones who got off versus the ones that were sentenced to prison. And something is clever done here earlier. When Moody had the map and was looking toward Snape on the map and said the line, if there's one thing I hate more than any other, it's a Death Eater who walked free. And it's a line that works well for both Barty Crouch Jr. and Mad-Eye Moody. It's the same wording, but with a different sentiment. He hates those Death Eaters that got free because he sacrificed everything for Voldemort and they were too cowardly to go to jail for him. While I'm sure the real Moody would hate Death Eaters that got free because he knows that they deserve to be in prison. One thing that stood out to me was when he says that decent people are so easy to manipulate. While he's talking about how he was able to get Cedric to tell Harry to open the egg underwater because decent people are predictable and he knew he would want to return, the, that Cedric would want to return the favor. But that line stands out because this is a man who was under the imperious curse for years and was manipulated to basically not be exactly who he was. Or who he is, I should say. And so, does that say that decent people are easy to manipulate, but evil people are harder to and you need to use stronger methods? Or is the imperious curse easy to put on someone once you get the hang of it and they're pretty difficult to break and ignore? So what do you think this line says about this situation? Especially since he's someone who is bad and apparently has been manipulated for years of his life. As Barty Crouch Jr. is going on about how his whole plan worked, he talks about how he's going to kill Harry and how he's going to be celebrated by all of the Death Eaters and Voldemort for the act, and he talks about how he and Voldemort are very similar. They have disappointing fathers that they're named after. Last episode, we discussed whether or not the Death Eaters knew about Voldemort's heritage, and here it seems at least that Barty Crouch does, which is interesting. 
And do we think this is because he's, you know, the most loyal one right now? Or do the Death Eaters just know? It's very interesting. Now, Dumbledore, McGonagall, and Snape come bursting in to save Harry at this moment. And it says, quote, At that moment, Harry fully understood for the first time why people said Dumbledore was the only wizard Voldemort had ever feared. The look upon Dumbledore's face as he stared down at the unconscious form of Mad-Eye Moody was more terrible than Harry could have ever imagined. There was no benign smile upon Dumbledore's face, no twinkle in the eyes behind the spectacles. There was cold fury in every line of the ancient face. A sense of power radiated from Dumbledore as though he were giving off burning heat. Unquote. That is an intense description of Dumbledore and very different than we've ever seen him before. Even from when we saw him just moments ago when Harry was on the pitch and he was trying to take care of him. Dumbledore, to me, seems like the kind of person you definitely get terrified of when they're angry because they're just never angry or don't seem to be anyway. Yet here we see him in his full power when he's at the end of his temper. And Dumbledore is going to kick off our discussion about trauma. But once we reach his office, first I want to chat about Barty Crouch Jr.'s backstory and get your thoughts. But I just want to say, so Dumbledore doesn't let Harry leave yet because, quote, understanding is the first step to acceptance, and only with acceptance can there be recovery. He needs to know who has put him through the ordeal he has suffered tonight and why, unquote. Just keep that in mind for later. So because Dumbledore believes this, he has Snape retrieve a truth-telling serum to use on Crouch and we get his entire backstory, as well as find Moody in the bottom of a trunk. We find out that Barty Crouch Jr. has been using Polyjuice Potion all year, and so he's the one who's been stealing from Snape's supply, not Harry, and he has had the real Moody under the Imperious Curse the entire time. He has inflicted the same control on Moody that was inflicted on him by his own father after he got out of prison. His mother switched places with him as she was dying and allowed him to escape. His father allowed Winky to nurse him back to health, and then Crouch Sr. put his son under the Imperious Curse and an invisibility cloak to keep him hidden at all times. We spoke earlier in this book about house elves and the role they play, and it was not lost on me that when Crouch Jr. speaks about Winky taking care of him, that he calls her the house elf. This is someone who cared deeply for him, took care of him 24-7, and yet he only calls her Winky like once or twice in the conversation. The rest of the time, it's the house elf. So Crouch Sr. not only helped break his son out of prison, but also used an unforgivable curse on him. And as we get details of this story, we see how the puzzle pieces fit into place 
with what we saw earlier in the book. Crouch didn't fire Winky just because she didn't stay in the tent where she was ordered to be. She had failed at something entirely bigger than that and with higher stakes. So it seems that the Imperious Curse is one that can weaken over time. As he said, he had moments of clarity as he fought it off. We've seen Harry fight it off in this book too. So it's not something that may work forever and ever. And I wonder if it depends on the will and determination of the person who is under the spell. And Bertha Jorkins, who has been mentioned throughout this book, is the one who discovered that Crouch Jr. was there. And when she ran into Wormtail, this whole plan got put into motion. Crouch Sr. was paid a visit and put under the Imperious Curse himself while they executed each step of their plan. And remember the memory we saw of Crouch Jr. being sent to prison and how he freaked out and screamed and claimed he didn't do it? Do we think that's true? Has your opinion changed on that at all? He says, quote, It was my dream, my greatest ambition to serve him, to prove myself to him. Unquote. That seems like the word of a man who would be ready to torture people into insanity for someone like Voldemort. What do you think? And what do you think about his backstory here? Similarly to how we asked on a Mindful Magic Monday about whether or not it was justified to use Dementors around Death Eaters or put suspected Death Eaters into Azkaban without a trial, do you think Crouch Sr.'s actions were justified here? Obviously, he wanted to keep control of his son, who was dangerous. But is the manner in which he did it using the Imperious Curse for years, is that humane? Is it justified? Do you feel bad for Crouch Jr., or does he absolutely deserve it? And what do you think about Crouch Sr.'s actions of helping his son get out of prison? Is that justified? Does the fact that it was his wife's dying wish make it something that's okay? Or no? To talk about the next chapter, we're going to revisit that line from Dumbledore, the one that says, Understanding is the first step to acceptance, and only with acceptance can there be recovery. He needs to know who has put him through the ordeal he has suffered tonight, and why. Dumbledore brings Harry up to his office. Sirius is there too. And Dumbledore asks Harry to recount everything that just happened. Sirius, just like McGonagall, tries to persuade Dumbledore from having Harry tell everything now. But Dumbledore insists that he needs to handle this now. And he says, quote, If I thought I could help you by putting you into an enchanted sleep and allowing you to postpone the moment when you would have to think about what has happened tonight, I would do it. But I know better. Numbing the pain for a while will make it worse when you finally feel it. Unquote. This is a very powerful statement and one that really resonated with me, as I'm sure it did many of you. 
many of us, when bad things happen, and they don't have to be as traumatic as what Harry just went through, we don't want to deal with it. We ignore it. We pretend we're fine or we process it on our own or try to anyway. But hiding from it only makes it worse and doesn't make it go away. It festers there until it's dealt with. As an actor, there was a class I took all about getting rid of your resistance, and the work was about feeling exactly what you were feeling and letting it out and not blocking it. Whatever came up, you would face it. And this teacher made the point that when we allow ourselves to feel our feelings, then they leave. If we don't, then they stick around and hold us back and make ourselves feel just miserable. And I think Dumbledore is right. This is something that Harry can't ignore or sleep off. He's going to have to talk about this and it's better to do it now because it might be harder later. Even though he is exhausted and traumatized and on his last thread because he just came out of this. So Harry begins to tell the story and it says, quote, It was easier to keep going now that he had started. It was even a relief. He felt almost as though something poisonous was being extracted from him. It was costing him every bit of determination he had to keep talking. Yet he sensed that once he had finished, he would feel better. And this isn't to say that just talking about it once makes everything better instantaneously, Obviously, it won't, but it makes the point that when you identify something, it usually is a little less scary to handle than it initially seemed. And talking about it, facing it, is something that makes you feel better after you've done it, rather than bottling all of it up inside. I looked into responses to trauma for this episode so we can see what applies to Harry now, and what might apply to him in the future, because this is the end of Goblet of Fire. Maybe this experience will carry over into book five. So regardless of what kind of traumatic event occurs in somebody's life, trauma itself leaves an imprint on the brain. We see a lot of changes in people after a traumatic event, especially if it's something that turns into PTSD, which is associated with greater activity in brain areas that process fear and less activation in parts of the prefrontal cortex. Not everyone reacts to trauma the same way. Some people may end up processing it and coping with it okay, while others develop PTSD and have to handle that on the daily. I looked into immediate and delayed responses to trauma because we definitely get to see Harry's immediate responses, but I think if we look at the delayed responses, we can speculate about what we might see in the following book, if Harry does have a hard time adjusting to what has just happened. So immediate reactions tend to be numbness, detachment, anxiety, fear, guilt, anger, sadness, helplessness, disorientation, overwhelm, shivering, shaking, 
elevated blood pressure, elevated heart rate, extreme exhaustion, difficulty concentrating, restlessness, not able to sleep, difficulty expressing oneself, avoidance, and depersonalization. Delayed reactions can be irritability, depression, mood swings, anxiety, fear, grief, shame, emotional detachment, nightmares, inability to sleep or eat, high cortisol levels, autoimmune issues, flashbacks, blaming oneself, relationship issues, high-risk behaviors, substance abuse, loss of purpose, hopelessness, and other general reactions to trauma tend to be self-blame, guilt, shame, aggressive behavior, and flashbacks. A lot of people tend to replay the memory. This is the brain trying to make sense of the event and maybe see where they could have acted differently. But it can be a nightmare to constantly relive the events in your head. Nightmares are also common, which may not be a nightmare of the event happening again, but of similar themes. We also see anger, sadness, numbness, avoidance, so trying not to think about the event, avoiding things related to the event, a lack of trust in other people. We also see hyperactive nervous systems, which can make you feel like you are on guard all the time. And we see this with Moody when he's in the Great Hall. You know, Moody was already somebody that was already on edge all the time, and he's just spent 10 months under the Imperious Curse at the bottom of a trunk. So it's going to be even worse for him with seeing danger everywhere, startling easily, and having trouble sleeping. How somebody handles a traumatic event depends on their own life experiences and also whether or not they have a good support system, they, whether or not they have coping skills already that they can use, um, as well as the responses of the community that's around them. A lot of people who experience trauma tend to have certain responses for a limited amount of time until they process, and then they can kind of get back to normal. Um, more severe responses can be continuous distress without periods of calm, severe dissociation, and intense intrusive memories that continue. And the emotions that I mentioned earlier, like anger, fear, sadness, and shame, those can be paired with having a hard time regulating them, especially when the person is younger when this traumatic thing happens. In one of the articles I read, it said that each age group is vulnerable in unique ways to the stresses of a disaster, with children and the elderly at greatest risk. And it also says that adolescents can display depression and social withdrawal, rebellion, risky activities, as well as disturbances in sleeping and eating. There's also a connection between trauma and adverse childhood experiences, which 
I think staying at the Dursleys is definitely an adverse childhood experience. And so those two together can cause chronic health conditions, which can be gastrointestinal, cardiovascular, neurological, or even sleep-related. When someone's under traumatic stress, it usually comes in one of two forms, either numbing or overwhelm. So basically feeling nothing or feeling way too much at one time. Numbing is when there's a detachment between thoughts and memories and emotion. So they're trying to hide what's going on inside of a person. And another system is hyperarousal, where you are constantly trying to be prepared for anything that can happen as a way to stop things from happening again. And this can also mess with your sleep, can make you startle more easily, and it can cause muscle tension. And this is actually a biological change as a result of a traumatic experience. Trauma also alters how a person thinks and acts. You know, it'll be different than it was before because their worldview has completely changed. You know, for example, they may no longer think the world is safe or they may no longer think that leaving the house is safe or being in a car is safe. And this can also cause feelings of isolation because people start to feel different from those around them, even if they've experienced the trauma together. You know, this can cause a belief that others won't understand, or even if this person explains it, it'll fall short and may not sound as bad as it actually was. Dissociation can also occur, which means that there's a separation of the person from the event and can result in a distortion of identity, space, or time. And so to mitigate all of the emotions and the reactions someone, has, someone is having after a traumatic event, they might develop new behaviors to manage these feelings. They may become avoidant or start to abuse substances. They may become impulsive or compulsive. They may engage in harmful behaviors to themselves. And not all of these reactions have to be unhealthy or dangerous. Sometimes people find creative outlets or fitness outlets that helps them cope. So that's the positive flip side of a coping mechanism. Substance abuse, though, is definitely something that tends to either start or increase in frequency after a traumatic event. And over the weekend, it was the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And one of the articles I was researching for this podcast stated that in the first two months of September 11th, over a quarter of New Yorkers who had already been smoking, drinking, or using marijuana increased their consumption of it. And the increase continued even six months after the event. And substance abuse is a way to try and self-soothe or self-medicate to avoid the emotions that this person is having after the traumatic event. Avoidance has a similar goal of trying to protect oneself by either avoiding thinking about the experience or avoiding physical places or people that may remind them of the event. And yet facing things is a part of recovery, whether that's diving into emotions or memories the goal is to desensitize oneself to the event so that it's not as traumatic 
and they can start working on the healing process. There are two different diagnoses that can occur after trauma. Acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm not going to dive into all the very specific nitty-gritty of each of these, but just to give you an idea, um, according to the DSM-5, ASD, acute stress disorder, is associated with the experience of one specific trauma rather than the experience of long-term exposure to chronic traumatic stress. And it is exposure to or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violation in one or more of the following ways. Directly experiencing the event, witnessing in person the event as it occurs to other people, learning that the event occurred to a close family member or close friend, experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to adversive details of the traumatic event. So for example, first responders collecting human remains. There also needs to be the presence of at least nine symptoms from five categories. And the categories are intrusion, negative mood, dissociation, avoidance, and arousal. So I'm not going to list all of these because there are a lot. Um, But just to give you an idea, intrusion symptoms can be recurrent, involuntary, and intrusive distressing memories of the event, distressing dreams, dissociative reactions. Negative mood can be a persistent inability to experience positive emotions. Avoidance symptoms can be efforts to avoid distressing memories, thoughts, or feelings. Efforts to avoid external reminders. Arousal symptoms can be sleep disturbance or irritable behavior and angry outbursts. It can also be exaggerated startle response or problems with concentration. This article also says that the primary presentation of an individual with an acute stress reaction is often that of someone who appears overwhelmed by the traumatic experience. The big difference between ASD and PTSD is that ASD tends to resolve quicker, while PTSD continues for longer and usually becomes a primary feature of somebody's life. So basically, ASD someone can have and then it usually passes at some point. PTSD is persistent and stays with somebody for a much longer period of time. So the criteria for PTSD is that individuals must have been exposed to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence, and the symptoms must produce significant distress and impairment for more than four weeks. And it has the same criteria as ASD. It has to be either directly experienced by somebody, It can be somebody witnessing it um, of somebody else, learning that it happened to a close family member or friend, or experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to adversive details of traumatic events. You also need the presence of at least one of the following intrusion symptoms. Some of them 
are very similar to what I mentioned before, recurrent involuntary and intrusive distressing memories, distressing dreams, dissociative reactions, intense or prolonged psychological distress at exposure to internal or external cues that symbolize or resemble an aspect of the traumatic event, also persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with the traumatic event. We also tend to see negative alterations in cognitions and mood associated with the traumatic event, which either begin or worsen after the traumatic event occurred. Going along with this is persistent and exaggerated negative beliefs or expectations about oneself, like no one can be trusted, persistent negative emotional state, markedly diminished interest or participation in significant activities, feelings of detachment or estrangement from others. We can also see reckless or self-destructive behavior, irritable behavior, angry outbursts with little or no provocation. A lot of the other symptoms are very similar to ASD, but also going along with PTSD, you see um, one needs to specify whether there are dissociative symptoms that are either depersonalization or derealization. So depersonalization is persistent or recurrent experiences of feeling detached from one's mental processes or body. Derealization is persistent or recurring experiences of unreality of surroundings. So basically everything feels not real, kind of like a dream. And the big thing about PTSD is that it becomes a big part of somebody's life. I wanted to go over these because I think it's important to recognize exactly how trauma can impact somebody. And we see Harry so far in this is exhausted. He's upset. He doesn't want to let go of Cedric when he first arrives. And then he has to go through another traumatic experience of realizing this person he trusted isn't actually who he thought he was and sees him at the bottom of a trunk, which actually also has to be disturbing. We also see that Harry feels guilty now. He says, I told him to take the cup with me and gets emotional about it. And so you can tell he's already showing a little bit of survivor's guilt. And to go back to Dumbledore's point about talking about what happened and how avoiding it won't help with healing, we do see that as Harry finishes his story, Fox has finished crying on his knee and healing it. So there's an image there of something being healed after he tells his story. But again, just sharing an experience isn't going to be enough to fully heal him. But it will start the process, hopefully, and I thought that image was worth pointing out. And thinking about these long, long-term effects of trauma gives us something to think about and to predict when it comes to book five. Do we think Harry will show signs of delayed reactions to trauma? Do you think it'll develop into something like ASD or PTSD? What do you think? And to make matters worse, the Minister of Magic comes in and screws everything up. He brings a Dementor into the castle, which is something 
Dumbledore said he would never allow. And just as a side note here, I think it's worth acknowledging because we see a divide here between Fudge and Dumbledore, and the chapter is called The Parting of the Ways. So we see Fudge go against Dumbledore's rules right away, and it cascades into their mutual respect and relationship completely breaking down. The Dementor kills Crouch Jr., which means there is no witness in their possession besides Harry that can corroborate the events of what occurred tonight. And it's here that we see, one, the groundwork of what Rita Skeeter has been doing all year, and two, the government's response to this event. Fudge doesn't want to believe Voldemort is back, and like many politicians, wants to protect his job over doing what is best for his people. Due to Rita Skeeter's articles, Fudge immediately doesn't fully trust Harry because he speaks parcel tongue, and apparently he's been having headaches and nightmares and possibly hallucinations. As if the majority of us don't have headaches and nightmares, minister, but go off, I guess. And it ties into these prejudices we see in the wizarding world. This whole book's theme has been about magical cooperation, and yet time after time, we see wizards hold things against each other. Harry is a 14-year-old who has no reason to lie, has the injuries to prove that something bad has happened, and the Minister of Magic doesn't want to believe him. And when Harry jumps in to yell that he's telling the truth and can name a bunch of different Death Eaters, Fudge gaslights him and makes excuses as to why Harry would know the names of these people not realizing that why would Voldemort have new supporters now if he hasn't even had a body these last 13 years, and that obviously a lot of people were faking. Even the R's must have known that. And I can just imagine Harry's anger and frustration and shock in this moment of, here is all the evidence, do something with it, and Fudge just doesn't want to because he's afraid of, quote, destabilizing everything we have worked for these last 13 years, unquote. Dumbledore even makes suggestions to him about what he can do. Dismiss the Dementors, go talk to the Giants, prepare now so that we can handle this before it gets worse, and Fudge says he'd be, quote, kicked out of office for suggesting getting rid of the Dementors. And it would be the end of his career if he went and approached the Giants. As if, you know, losing your job was worse than Voldemort coming back. And Dumbledore calls him out on it. He says, quote, You are blinded by the love of the office you hold, Cornelius. Unquote. Which is so relatable. How many politicians do we see today that just don't care about taking care of their actual constituents, and instead just do whatever they can to keep themselves in office instead of doing what's right. So how has our opinion of the ministry changed here, if it has? This is the same governmental body that allowed Sirius Black to go to jail without a trial, that is now not willing to step up and believe a child and one of the greatest wizards. Snape even shows him 
the dark mark. And Fudge is still like, nope. So he leaves, and Dumbledore decides to take matters into his own hands. He says there is work to be done and has something for everybody to do. Bill goes to send a message to his dad. He sends McGonagall to get Hagrid and Madame Maxime. He even makes Sirius and Snape shake hands and then sends Sirius off to alert the quote-unquote old crowd and sends Snape off elsewhere. Which is interesting because he says, quote, you know what I must ask you to do if you are ready, if you are prepared, unquote. And Snape says that he is, and yet looks nervous. And even later, Harry is wondering about what Snape was asked to do, and is questioning why Dumbledore is so confident that Snape was on their side. Do you think he truly is? Or are you of the mind that once a Death Eater, always a Death Eater? What do you think Dumbledore has asked Snape to do? What do you think Dumbledore's greater plan is? And before Harry goes to sleep again, Mrs. Weasley hugs him very tightly, like a mother would, and it's the first time Harry has really gotten emotional support like that, and he absolutely needs it, and it's touching because he does have a support system if he needs it. Same with Hagrid, who right away assures Harry that he always thought Voldemort would come back, and also doesn't pressure Harry to be alright. He's like, of course you're not, but you will be, which... Harry doesn't respond to that, so we'll see. For the last chapter, I know I've brought this up multiple times in the last few episodes, so I apologize if you're sick of hearing me say it, but when we spoke about the first task, we talked about how dragons are usually the last thing to face, but it was the first. And I couldn't help but think about that with this last chapter, which is titled The Beginning. So if this is the last chapter, and it's called The Beginning, what is in store for us in Order of the Phoenix? At the feast, Dumbledore captures what I think this book is all about, and I think again helps us think deeply about what the themes will be for the following books. He insists on telling the students the truth, that Voldemort was the one who did this to Cedric. And everyone, literally everyone, toasts to Cedric in the Great Hall. It's really the first time we've seen true, magical cooperation with every house, just for that one moment. Dumbledore says, quote, The Triwizard Tournament's aim was to further and promote magical understanding. In the light of what has happened, of Lord Voldemort's return, Such ties are more important than ever before. Every guest in this hall will be welcomed back here at any time, should they wish to come. I say to you all, once again, in the light of Lord Voldemort's return, we are only as strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. Lord Voldemort's gift for spreading discord and enmity is very great. We can fight it only by showing an equally strong bond of friendship and trust. Differences of habit and language 
are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. Unquote. He emphasizes Voldemort's return twice in that passage, really honing in on the fact that Voldemort probably divides and conquers, that the way to defeat him is to stand together and embody that theme of being united. We see this in our own world today, people sowing division between groups of people to cause chaos and destruction, to stop people from trusting each other or working together. And it only makes for a more divided, destructive world that's easier to control from a single source. We've had a parting of the ways between the ministry and Hogwarts. Will the students be the same? Or will we see more unity after something like this? A couple more details before I wrap this up. Hermione has figured out how Rita Skeeter was getting all the juicy details during the year. She's quite literally a bug that can listen in on conversations. She's an unregistered animagus, and so Hermione is using that to keep her in check. Draco also makes an unwelcome appearance at the end of this book, using Harry's trauma and Cedric's death to make his point that Harry picked the wrong side and that his friends will be the first to go now, now that Voldemort's back. And everyone has just had enough of his shit, and they send curses and jinxes his way to deal with him. Fred and George helped with this, and we now know who they've been trying to write to all year. Ludo Bagman totally swindled them, and they've been trying to get their money back. And so Harry gives them his winnings because he doesn't want the money and doesn't need the money, and he wants to give them the chance to develop their jokes, their inventions, which is really awesome. To finish off our last episode on Goblet of Fire, I want to read the last line of this book to you. Quote, As Hagrid had said, what would come would come, and he would have to meet it when it did. Unquote. A great note to leave us off on, and I think implies that we have more coming in the next book. Things have fundamentally changed in the wizarding world. And like this chapter says, it's only the beginning of what we're going to see. Voldemort is back. We are not in the same wizarding world we started out in. What do you think we should expect from the next book? What were your thoughts on this book? Let me know at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at firstyearspod. Again, the house point standings are as follows. Hufflepuff with 2,270 points, Slytherin with 1,040 points, Ravenclaw with 560, and Gryffindor with 505. But don't forget, you still have a couple more chances to earn house points for your house with Mindful Magic Mondays and our trivia on Wednesdays, and also when we do our House Cup cocktails night before we announce the winners of the House Cup. This time around, there will be two prizes, 
someone um, random from the house that wins, like always, but also a prize for whoever has racked up the most points for their house. I cannot wait to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for joining me for Goblet of Fire. We will have our next episode on Goblet of Fire, the movie, and then I will be taking a couple of weeks off to just prepare everything for Order of the Phoenix, and then we will be back with a brand new house cup tournament and a brand new book to read and dive into. I hope you guys are as excited as I am, and I will see you guys next time. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first years podcast. That's Sarah with an H and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have, and we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming to everybody.